This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast. I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor. Each week we take a look at some of the pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. In this week's episode, Rishi Sunak has fallen behind Liz Truss in the Tory leadership race. Can he catch up? Plus, should the UK government crack down on China's emerging tech market? And finally, what's the appeal of country pop music? First up, our deputy political editor Katie Bulls has written this week's cover piece on Rishi Sunak's mad dash to catch up with Liz Truss. Katie joins us now with our economics editor, Kate Andrews. Katie, for the cover piece this week, you've written about the quite considerable gap that Rishi has uh, in the leadership race behind Liz Truss. Uh, He was the favourite to win among Tory MPs until pretty recently. So has it gone wrong for him? So I think objectively it's gone wrong for Rishi Sunak in the sense that it now looks quite hard, not impossible, but looks pretty uphill for him to win this leadership contest. And I think a few factors outside of his control have have ultimately exacerbated the problem. So the number one issue is time. Rishi Sunak already knew amongst the grassroots he would be behind pretty much any candidate, probably not perhaps Tom Tugendhat, but you know the the candidates most likely to end up he'd be behind them when it comes to grassroots polling. That was clear during the parliamentary stage. But I think both he and his supporters felt they would have the whole summer to try and persuade the grassroots to change their mind. And actually, this would play to Rishi Sunak's strengths because he is a confident communicator. So the TV debates, the head-to-heads, and the hustings would all mean that uh, the other candidate, who we now know as Liz Truss, could be properly scrutinised and. Rishi Sunak had a chance of coming through. But the strikes and also this uh, decisions by CCHQ mean that the ballots go out next week and the expectation is that lots of the membership will vote very quickly. And that means effectively he has a fortnight to close the gap. Given the gap, according to the latest YouGov polling, is over 20 points, that's a very difficult task. And Kate, in this leadership contest, economics has obviously been at the centre of a lot of the disagreements, I mean, particularly between Rishi and between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Whose vision for the economy are you more persuaded by? I think they both have faults, but I suppose one of my deep frustrations is that I got to know Liz Truss and learn about her political philosophy during my think tank days, sort of 2016, um, when I was working at the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, all the way up to to when I joined The Spectator. Uh, And she was a big part of a lot of the initiatives that that think tanks were putting forward to bring together free market MPs. Um, And so, you know, she was very actively involved. And I have personally been surprised to the extent to which she has dropped spending cuts and shrinking the size of the state um, as part of her selling points. Now, maybe I shouldn't be surprised because I suppose if you're just seeking votes at this point, you you probably would go harder on tax cuts than you would on spending cuts because people like to have more money back in their pockets and they don't want to talk about spending cuts on, say, healthcare or other very major things. But I, I think it's complicating this economics debate, which, as you say, Will, and as Katie points out uh, on 
on many occasions, including in her brilliant cover piece this week, you know, because tax and spend is at the forefront of this leadership debate, it's the whole thing's feeling a bit disingenuous to me. We are in a weird position where despite Liz Truss for years making the case that we need to slash tax and spending, you have Rishi Sunak, who ironically spent the billions during COVID making those cases, and you have Liz Truss saying, actually, we can borrow a bit more. It's just kind of baffling to me how the tables have turned. But Kate, Rishi, Rishi's word has changed as well on this. I mean, we saw this week that he, he U-turned on, on VAT, didn't he? So I actually think it's a bit much to describe it as a U-turn, although I understand why it looks that way. When we go back to February, when Sunak was trying to figure out how he's going to do his first big energy support package, cutting VAT on energy was one of the major levers he was actually considering pulling. And he, he liked the idea, but he was worried about the accusation that the wealthier people with the bigger houses would get the biggest benefit from that. And that's why he pulled away from it. I think it's something he's always been interested in looking at. And I do think there's a credible case that a temporary tax tax cut is very different from a long-term years, possibly decades worth of a tax cut. And it's also different when you're thinking, you know, very temporary cost of living crisis versus I'm going to cut your taxes, but also increase healthcare spending for decades to come. And, you know, there's no trade-off here. The problem is that's a lot to explain, right? And you have to have a grassroots voter who wants to like sit down and have that full economics debate that's very hard to put across in a few lines. And this is where I think Sunak will be in trouble. It's very easy to paint it as a U-turn. It's easy to paint it as actually Liz Truss is doing well by saying I'm going to cut tax, so maybe I'll cut some tax. I-, I think there is more to it, but from you know that simple communications point of view, that's going to be hard to get across. Katie, how have the two campaigning strategies varied between... Uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak in this in this race. And are you getting the impression that Rishi is now trying to appeal to the Tory membership with a little bit more uh, red meat? Well, I think you have to remember that because of the switch in terms of the ballots going at sooner, it's almost as though I think Rishi is having to speed up his strategy. So what might have been, you know, a series of announcements spread out over several weeks is now on hyperspeed. I thought it was summed up in a way in that BBC head-to-head where Rishi Sunak was almost speaking at, a, you know, a very fast uh, pace. It was almost 1.5, I think Fraser said, when you're listening to a podcast, which I think just summed up how he is just running against the clock. And therefore, I think, Rishi Sunak's had to move very quickly and Liz Truss because she struggled to get through the parliamentary rounds she pushed out a lot of policies during the first stage because she had to say oh look I'm going to put this money into defence come over and join my my gang and Rishi Sunak didn't have to do that to the same degree so he is playing catch up I think we're about to see the difference in campaigns more acutely in the coming days because Liz, Liz Truss is out in front because she has now done a couple of TV debates, I think her team think that she can strip back and focus more on the membership, not take risks, not be interviewed by Andrew Neil's Rishi Sunak is, and actually just focus on touring and going to all these various associations. Rishi Sunak, meanwhile, I think is going to be doing a lot more media, trying to get more debates going even. And yes, also starting the membership, which is very key, but yeah, policy announcements and actually trying to... I think, go further on the media in the hope it then puts pressure on Liz Truss to do more media. Because while I think Liz Truss has grown more confident in her media performance, if you think about the first debate where she polled pretty badly to the head-to-head where amongst membership she was the, the winner... Um, I think they still think the more questions she faces on her plans, uh, the better it will be for them. Kate, you mentioned earlier in this podcast and in your, your, your excellent column that Truss's current economic policy uh, doesn't quite 
sit right with you. But do you agree with her about the questioning of certain orthodoxies, for example, regarding the, the, the mandate for the Bank of England? Yes, I think it's really refreshing, a lot of the things that she's saying. First of all, we are long overdue to talk about the tax burden in this country, like the menace that it is. So I am delighted that she's pushing for lower taxes, full stop. I think that's great. It's also refreshing to hear her talk about the Bank of England, like, you know, like you can criticize it. I mean, independence for the bank was never supposed to mean that it was completely immune from criticism um, and from pointing out where, you know, perhaps it was making some errors. The Bank of England's inflation target is 2%. We're nearing double digits now. I think it is legitimate to say something's gone badly wrong, perhaps for politicians to look at its remit again and to hold the bank to account. And that is, of course, very different from from calling for renationalization. You know, and there are, again, complications here. I do think Liz Truss has a problem in talking about interest rates and talking about the fact that though she might not set them, if they were to increase under her premiership, she isn't acknowledging the pain that that would cause for mortgage holders and people with credit card debt. There are a lot of things she doesn't want to talk about because they're you know, the public finances are catastrophic and we're in a really difficult time. But yeah, it, it is really nice to have a proper debate between Sunak and Truss about fiscal responsibility, about the tax burden, and about the future economic policy of the country. I would say it's long overdue. So I, from a very wonkish perspective, have been enjoying it. But I'm also going to be very aware and, and point out where I think perhaps there's some cherry picking going on. Katie, after weeks of blue-on-blue fighting. What challenges do you think the next Prime Minister will face in terms of bringing the party back together? I mean, has has too much damage already been done? So I'm in two minds on this, in the sense that I think there are a core, but I think it's a small core, of Boris Johnson loyalists who definitely don't want Rishi Sunak to be Prime Minister, for sure. And I think that is actually having, as I say in the piece, I think that is actually succeeding in planting some doubt into the minds of the membership on Rishi Sunak, which is another hurdle. He It's not insurmountable, but it's just another thing he has to overcome. Um, and I think that uh, some actually even go as far as, I think, to fool Boris Johnson's legacy, effectively. No other Tory leader to do as well as Boris Johnson did in that 2019 election. And to be honest, I think the idea they'd win a larger majority seems... Strange things happen in politics, but quite hard to imagine. You're not betting so on it. They're, they're probably going to be okay there. Um, but at the same time, I've been struck by the fact that ultimately MPs want to keep their seats. And I do wonder, once a new leader is in, I think at least temporarily there'll be effort by the bulk of the party to get around to get you know get behind the new leader and there is a careerist element to this I think it's interesting that as Liz Truss um, increasingly looks like the likely a uh, successor to Boris Johnson how you know people who have previously been quite critical of Liz Truss now suddenly being quite complimentary you can see you know which way the wind is blowing and how things are turning I think there will be an effort but then at the same time Anyone who wants to do anything bold in number 10, having not won the 2019 election themselves, massively go, of course, things that will isolate some of the party is going to face opposition when it comes to tricky decisions. And I think there is just a question as to if Liz Truss is the next prime minister, one third of the party backed her, more will get behind her. But how much is she going to be able to push through before people start to say, where is your mandate and do you need to go for another election? And finally, a question for both of you. Given the amount of... uh steeliness perhaps we've seen or or bitterness even uh, in some of the leadership race so far would Rishi or Liz be in each other's cabinets should the other one get into the office my suspicion is no 
my suspicion is that despite that moment during the BBC debate where uh, Liz Truss suggested that she would have Rishi in her cabinet and Rishi just dished out very nice comments about Liz, I think that the economics debate in particular has drawn out for these two camps in particular how fundamentally different they are when it comes to how to handle the next few years. And it's hard to say whether or not just out of politeness something might be offered, but I think it's just as likely as it would be rejected as as it might be offered and um yeah i struggle to see it but katie katie will know better than me i think there'll be offers the question is is there an offer that you just have to refuse yeah. and then <laughs> i do not currently get the sense from speaking to people around liz trust that she is about to offer rishi sunak a great office of state and <laughs> therefore how keen is rishi sunak to be in liz trust's government now i think technically speaking if it's a brief that doesn't really touch on the economy there is a way of making it work. It is custom that you uh, offer. Remember when Boris Johnson offered Jeremy Hunt defence secretary? That was seen as a bit of a snub because people said it should be a great office of state. But then lots in the Tory party think defence secretary is such an important job. The idea that Jeremy Hunt then turned it down and say, well, do you not care about armed forces? Um, so so it, went, it went both ways. But I would be snubs surprised. On top of snubs. <laughs> exactly. I would be surprised if uh, even defence secretary was offered in this instance. So I... I think they would offer each other's jobs but I just wonder if it would be junior enough or unappealing enough that the, that the other won't go for it. Thank you Katie and thank you Kate. Next, Charles Parton in this week's magazine looked at the growing threat of Chinese technology. He joins me now with Dr Alexi Drew, an analyst in defence, security and infrastructure. Uh, Charles, you've written in this week's magazine about the CCP technological threat to security that our politicians here in Britain either don't seem to have noticed or perhaps are ignoring. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Yes, I mean, you're referring, I think, in particular to Rishi Sunak and uh, Liz Truss's debate on on Monday. And indeed, Mr. Sunak has come out earlier with a, a press release also talking about the threat from China. It's unfair to say that they don't understand the, the, the science and technology threat, the SMT threat. But I think the particular aspect that um, worries us is the, um, the the idea of the Internet of Things and what, whether they've actually grasped the threat there. That they certainly haven't. And in the broader context, um, I still don't think that we've fully grasped the threat in, 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 in SMT and the need to, to make to take certain measures, as, as Robert Frost, the American poet says, good fences make good neighbours, and let's make clear in advance where we can cooperate with China, and, and we should wherever we can, but also there are areas which are either sensitive from a military point of view, or because they, they um, help build up the repression and, and the surveillance state. That, um, so we've got to steer clear of those too. And for our listeners, could you just explain what the Internet of Things is and how it applies to our lives and, and where the potential for a CCP threat enters into it? Because of the, the, the wide nature of the Internet of Things uh, and, and the modules that will be in so many of our both domestic devices, but perhaps more importantly, manufacturing and logistics and, and security and a whole transport, a whole range of, of, of activities, industrial and, and, and others. What we're doing is, in a sense, what we almost did with Huawei and 5G. We're letting in, for want of a better expression, a Trojan horse, 
but that's probably a bad expression. We're letting in the ability to, to extract an awful lot of our data in vast amounts, which is a threat, I think, to, in some cases, our national security. We're also a little bit oblivious to the threat to our economic prosperity. I mean, these the companies, the Chinese companies that are moving in and, and trying uh, in line with the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party's strategy of dominating the new technologies, they, they are quite intent on, on using the same sorts of uh, unfair competition, subsidies, uh, and, and, and a whole range of um, methods to control these new industries. And once you start controlling new industries like that, not only do you harm our economic prosperity, but also you get the, the economic power that comes from that, which then comes down to making dependencies upon China, and that gives them geopolitical power. So it's, it's, it's partly the national security, it's partly the economic uh, prosperity argument. It's also because these vast amounts of privacy of data are going back, a question of our privacy as individuals. And, and finally, there's an awful lot of values that are built into technology these days. And the most obvious example of, of, of that being that these companies are deeply involved with the repression in Xinjiang, for instance, and the development of the repressive state and smart technologies, smart surveillance technologies. And uh, I don't think that we should be prejudicing our own values by allowing them to do that, to spread that sort of uh, activity into our own countries. Would it, would it help if we, if we just gave a couple of sort of graphic examples of what, what this might mean? I mean, for instance, Axon, which is a company which produces police body-borne cameras, has about 70% of the US market and I think supplies also the Met Police. Well, they are negotiating with one of these companies, they've got a research contract for a new cellular, uh, IoT cellular mo module. If that goes ahead into, into a, a, an actual contract for production, well, then you've got vast numbers of police cameras providing data, vast amounts of data, from potentially some very sensitive places. Now, it might be the Bobby on the beat in Brixton and Baltimore, and that's perhaps not too too sensitive, but it could equally be, be in the White House or in or in uh, Number 10 or in the sensitive uh, Department of Defense uh, MOD facility. Or again, you know, just in terms of an individual, if uh, these modules are in certain cars, they're in certain of, of the doorbells, which have cameras, not just your own, but it, sometimes they cover the street. And if you're trying to, say, protect a minister's security, if this the data on when they leave their house or when they walk down the street or when their car goes to X or Y uh, is, is going back to a hostile power, and if that hostile power collects all that data and with the use of algorithms and, and, and machine learning, it's not only knowing whether the minister has been, but where the minister's going to be. That's, that, that's the sort of worry. And there may be other people in other sensitive jobs. And, and, and you can then move on from that to talk about things like, okay, you don't know how many Javelin missiles the US produces or certain anti-tank um, weapons that the, US, that the UK produces. But you can work out where they are if you've got full penetration of the logistics systems and you've seen as they come out of the production mines, as it were, where they're moving to. Are oh, they all going to Ukraine? So there are none in Taiwan. Are there not enough that they can ship them to Taiwan? You can start working out an awful lot of very serious intelligence questions, which in the old days you'd have needed an agent on the ground or inside the facility. 
which is almost impossible since those facilities uh, might be in, 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 in hostile countries. And Alexei, you're a consultant in political and geopolitical risks, particularly when it comes to emerging technologies. Do you agree with Charles's analysis of the kind of threat or the, the potential for a threat that, that the UK might be facing? I, I would 100% agree with it. And I, I think that the potential is um, an important word to stress here. But it's not a word that you stress to kind of to set aside the risk. It's a fact that you actually need to re- reframe the fact that the fact that there is a potential here, quite a significant potential, means that we we should be acting in a very risk-averse manner in the way that we deal with these threats to economic prosperity, to national security, to values and to privacy. Because the possibility, the potential is high. The intent, as Charlie wrote in the article quite accurately, has been demonstrated. And therefore, if we were to, if we were to be doing what we should in this case, and proactively trying to mitigate these risks or these different forms of of threats to us individually and communally, we should be acting upon that potential risk to mitigate it. We should be trying to find a way to counter it by allowing our own companies or enabling our own companies to compete at least fairly on the international global market. And we should certainly be raising awareness so that individuals who are purchasing these products and companies that are purchasing these products are aware of the potential risk that they're posing to themselves individually, corporately, and as a community. And when it comes to the the modules that make the Internet of Things, it's obviously quite a technical thing. And would, if you were able to, to explain it a little bit for our listeners, I'm sure they would appreciate that. But I, I wondered as well, do you agree with Charlie when he says that it's an area even more crucial than Huawei and 5G? And if so, why? I think so to answer that question first and then to give an idea of, of the of an explanation which perhaps makes the technical more understandable. Effectively the IoT is I mean we've heard the term five G. Some have used the term five point five G to describe IoT. It's effectively the application of. One of my criticisms about our rush towards five G and rush into the arms of Huawei and others, for example, was that at the time there were very few applications that justified the the seeming need to have this technology now as opposed to take a slower route to get something which was more secure and safer. That is changing and IoT is one of those key applications, both industrially, in fact most notably industrially, but also in terms of the domestic uses which we're now seeing develop that make use of this. Now, To answer the first part of your question is what is IoT and how do these modules work? IoT is effectively a vast array of a very large number of devices that connect to each other and to the internet more broadly. They all will generally have some form of sensor attached to them, be it something as simple as detecting light or be it as more complex as detecting their position, their movement, sound, heat, all these things that effectively are then used to process and give us the outputs that we enjoy, such as um, heating systems which adapt to the temperature outside and weather, or through to traffic management systems that can assess general flow rates of traffic and therefore change signaling systems to try and keep things moving properly. All of these devices connect to each other and then externally to the wider internet through either Wi-Fi, 
which we all are well acquainted with, or cellular networks, which is your 3G, your 4G, or your 5G. These particular modules that Charlie is talking about in his article are the cellular kind. These are devices um, that have cellular IoT in, or cellular modules, because they are effectively going to be outside the range of, of Wi-Fi. They're the things you put down your end of your garden that you don't have a Wi-Fi signal for. Or they're your traffic management systems that you can't rely on Wi-Fi or they're in your industrial control systems, in your manufacturing um, facilities. Sometimes also the cellular component is a backup. When you have a device that cannot afford to lose connection, that has to be able to be monitored 24-7 and controlled 24-7 come what may, you'll have Wi-Fi, but as a backup in case that fails, you'll have a cellular module as well, which means that it can continue to connect. And these cellular modules are the ones that these three companies that Charlie's are mentioning effectively are holding over 50% of the global market and in the region of 70% of the number of connections made to them globally, which is an astronomical share of the market. Charles, in your piece, you write that there is what you call the, the paradox of incapability. So you say that just as with Huawei and 5G, poor design of these IoT modules is in and of itself a, a, a threat. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we're always, we're worried about data getting into the wrong hands. And, and, and there's a lot been a lot of talk about sort of backdoors being put in into various pieces of equipment, but that may or may not, may not be, be the case. But if your technology is poor, and it was poor in the case of Huawei, um, what you're worried about is that not just that the Chinese can get in, but, but anyone can get in. And you're, not, and, and you're not also sure whether it's been deliberately designed that way so that people can get in or whether it is just genuine, badly designed. And these devices throughout their lifetimes, which will be um, you know, measured, I think, in, in decades, Alexei would agree, have to be patched, software patched on a very regular basis. And you may remember back in, in the days when we were debating Huawei, how the GCHQ cell reported that it was just not possible. It may have been to the Intelligence Committee report. I can't remember exactly. But they said they simply couldn't check every single update that, that is going to go in over the life of the device. So if you are going to, uh, either you start with, with poor technology such that there are ways of getting in through what the Americans call bug doors rather than back doors, or else um, you're going to put in malware through patches later on, software patches later on. Uh, I just, as Alexi said right at the start, you really don't want to leave that potential lost to your national security or all the other things that we've talked about open to what is un undoubtedly a hostile power. I, I mean, just very briefly on, on the question of, of intent, as it were, at the, at the very highest level. If you go back and, and, and read the things that Xi Jinping says are his intentions, both when he started in, in the first Politburo meeting, when he talks about, this was in 2013, January 2013, he talks about the need for Chinese socialism to gain the dominant position over Western capitalism. And, and, and this is a theme that comes throughout, you know, even to, to where, we, where we are now, where last year the, in the sixth plenum, this very important meeting, he talked about various hostile forces will never allow us to realize the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation smoothly. And only by taking the initiative to fight, to fight can there be a way out. Evasion, compromise, 
and retreat will only lead to failure and humiliation and can only be a dead end. I mean, that's how he sees it. He sees it as a confrontation between hostile powers. And at the very least, therefore, we need to keep our guard up. Well, Alexei, uh, just to finish on then, what do you think the solution is if we do need to, to guard ourselves from this? Is the solution a UK ban of Chinese IoT modules? I I think the solution rests effectively in the, the technology and the standards. I think one of the things that I've been really clear on since since Huawei, in fact, when this was my first kind of foray into looking specifically at the the use of technology and emerging technologies as a geopolitical lever, is that the UK, I, I'm, I'm saying the UK, I should be fair, in fact, actually most uh, of countries involved here, the UK, Europe and the US, there's no no one has really got a better way of doing this, is we respond to each of these very similar sets of risks that come from a very similar source, very similar set of intent versus capability, and a very similar means of actually achieving that goal for the CCP. And we do it individually each time. We do it with telecoms, and we wait a couple of years, and we then find, in this case, perhaps that IoT, cellular IoT modules are something that we should be aware of. And so we react to that. Um, in a couple of years, we'll probably do the same things with advanced materials or rare earth metals. And we'll do it again. In reality, we can't afford to continually be reactive. What we need to do is look at the general pattern of behavior and the way that emerging technologies and these um, technological high grounds, as the CCP refers to them, the strategic high grounds in technology, are being used to give the party and China an advantage and set themselves ab above the West, the, UK, the US and the UK and Europe, and do it in a manner which will put their values and their means of doing global politics ahead. And rather than react to that as it happens piecemeal, we need to consider that we need to come up with legislative tools that mean that we can actually have a pattern of reaction or proactive reaction as opposed to waiting for something to happen. We have seen bits of it happening. You've seen the economic security bill and things like this. But they're always reactive. We Newport Wafer almost gets sold to a Chinese company and then is stopped last minute. Arm is almost sold to NVIDIA and then is stopped last minute. We can't keep leaving it to just before we hit the end, the finish line. We need to actually make sure that government is aware and proactive to the pattern of behavior that is creating these risks time and time again within this area of technology. And I think that that also means that the US, Europe, Canada, Australia, we all need to come together and work out what this issue means for us. Thank you, Charles. And thank you, Alexi. Finally, Sam Chris has written about his love for country pop music in this week's magazine. He joins us now, along with our associate editor and columnist Rod Liddle, who also reviews albums for The Spectator's arts pages. Sam, you've written about your love for country pop for this week's magazine. It's a, it's a genre that you have said that some people consider to be the worst produced in human history. Uh, can you tell us about your unpopular opinion? Yeah, I massively enamoured of the ugliest and bitter, most bitter music on the planet, which is kind of country pop from around the kind of early 2000s to uh, about middle 2010s, which is uh, 
as I say in the article, when I uh, when people in at parties in London ask, you know, oh, what music do you listen to? And I'm kind of forced to admit that these days, very often, it is country music. Uh, and a kind of pallor falls over their face, and they kind of say quite desperately, oh, so like, like kind of good country, like uh, Hank Williams, right? You know, Johnny Cash. And I have to kind of go, no, no, not not the good stuff, not, not the legitimate stuff. The songs that are all about trucks and driving your truck in the mud and spending all your money on the truck. And what is it that, that draws you to these, these songs about trucks and, <laughs> and so on? <laughs> I mean, I think initially... I think in the same way that uh, people like world music as a kind of affectation, I think I kind of have a similar attitude. I mean, I first encountered the stuff when I was a student. I did a year abroad in Los Angeles where in in my kind of circles, there was not a lot of country music to be heard. But um, every so often I would visit somewhere else and there was this airport shuttle that would take me to LAX and the guy who ran it listened to a steady diet of truly resentful country pop and there was one song that I remember playing it's called uh, Like My Dog and it's by a man called Billy Currington I believe and the gist of it is that the man wants his wife to love him like his dog loves him with lines like my dog never gets mad when I say his sister is a bitch um <laughs> and um i don't know like it emerged out of a out of a world and a set of kind of cultural assumptions that was so far removed from everything i knew and i found it very kind of charismatic and fascinating rod you've reviewed all sorts of music for the spectators arts pages what do you make of country pop music and uh, what do you make of sam's uh, love of it do you agree with him Yes, I do agree with him. I think it should be force-fed to everyone in London as a corrective uh, to their appalling lives. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. It's white blues, basically. It, it, it talks about the things which which ordinary Americans care about, which is their wives cheating on them, their dogs dying, their trucks. Uh, there are no drive-by shootings. You know, there are no drug deals. Uh, I mean, that's not strictly true, actually. There uh, there are a number of drug deals these days. Well, in country pop? In, uh, yeah, no, in, in, in country pop music, it's definitely not unknown. But proper drug deals. You know. <laughs> White people drug deals. Uh, I, have, I have to say, country pop probably isn't one of my favourite genres. Some of the stuff I think is tries my patience a little. Mm. Uh, but... But it started using the cadences of rap at times as well, uh, rather cleverly. Uh, if you listen to some of them, certainly post-2012, 20, 2013-ish, you get quite a lot of country artists actually using rap as a, uh, as a means of kind of syncopating what is otherwise a, a very predictable and straightforward 4-4 time, which is what you get with country music. But no, I, I, I love it. And it, it, is, it is a corrective. It is a reaction. It's always been on the right, um, with, a few, with a few caveats. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that. There's, uh, well, you know. again, well, well, let me give you a few caveats. Uh, the, the, the outlaw country music from the 70s was certainly on the left. Joe Ely, Guy Clark and Waylon and Willie and people like that. And Jimmy Dane uh, Gilmore. And there are a few, the Dixie Chicks around today. Uh, there, there, there have been plenty of arguments within country music about Trump and plenty of protests by some groups about Trump and, and then this bedrock of, 
of, of country stalwarts who stick up for whoever the Republican president is. And that goes way, way back, you know, at the time of the hippies and uh, at the time of, of psychedelia and so on, there were plenty of country musicians, Merle, Merle Haggard among them, uh, the Bellamy Brothers, Charlie Daniels Band, uh, stretching all the way into Leonard Skinner and that kind of southern boogie, who were well to the right of centre. And it's still a bit the case today that if you had to divide music up into who's on the left, who's on the right, country basically is on the right. You know, Crystal Gale, a, a, a very, very strong Republican. Uh, it's slightly been changed today. Taylor Swift certainly on the left. Uh, and so is uh, Miley Cyrus. So, so would you disagree, Rod, with Sam in his piece when he, he says that he believes that the whole genre is now dedicated to propping up an enchanting fantasy of America. But do you think actually country music is still speaking to a reality for a lot of people? I think it's speaking to their realities in a nostalgic sense. Uh, So to that degree, I kind of agree entirely. I think, yeah, it's, uh, it, it does, country music has always reveled in nostalgia and sentiment. And I think it is, to a degree, putting forward a view of life which was au courant, you know, 40, 50 years ago, but really isn't today. And there's something comforting in that. Yeah, I I guess I want to push back on some of that a little. I I think probably the most interesting and exciting country artist at the moment is a man named Tyler Childers, who does this kind of, you know, in a way, very, very nostalgic kind of roots country, a lot of fiddle. and well, actually, his most recent album, Long Violent History, is his attempt to work his way through the kind of great American songbook on the fiddle. He's not a fantastic fiddle player. He's learning. But the final song on that, the title track, is his take on the Black Lives Matter movement, which the general gist of it is, if the kind of things that were happening to black Americans were happening to us, then you would see a whole posse of us come up from the holler with our guns and surround the courthouse and burn the town down. And how can how, how can we possibly presume to judge other people who are responding to violence done against them in a similar fashion? Country music absolutely does traffic in the past. You know, there are many, many different ways of doing that. You know, there are, you know, you can you can take elements from the past and um, counterpose them in interesting ways with what's going on in the present. As I say in the piece, I don't, I don't really think a lot of contemporary pop country music is about nostalgia per se. I mean, you know, if you listen to uh, say. Florida Georgia line they're 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 not talking about uh outlaws and uh the way things used to be they're uh they're mostly talking about uh getting drunk and driving a truck and going to parties what do you mean Sam in your piece when you say that country music does not strictly speaking exist country music is I I mean it was interesting when Rod described it as white blues because um you know blues is absolutely one of the main musical streams that flows into country and in the area where country grew up you had kind of Celtic folk music and you had blues music combining um, especially in kind of hill communities 
which tended to be a lot more racially integrated and mixed than the planter communities in the lowlands. So you had a lot of white people and a lot of black people making essentially the same music. But the kind of strict division into country music and something else happened with the advent of radio. Country music was one of the first kinds of music that was, you know, aggressively promoted through radio. And the radio stations at the time would split the music up between what they called hillbilly music and then race music, which was essentially to begin with, very often the same kind of music, but hillbilly music was made by white people and race music was made by black people. And race music kind of uh, continued to uh, evolve into all manner of different things. But hillbilly music was essentially defined by the fact that the people who made it were white. Although, you know, it has obviously continually refreshed itself with influences from uh, some of the descendants of of race music, you know... um, Rock music uh, obviously uh, ended up exerting a significant influence on country. And more recently, so has rap music. You know, there there are, I think less so now, but but for a while there were quite a lot of country songs that, yeah, as Rod pointed out, did borrow the uh, cadences of rap music. I mean, there's some other strange and interesting kind of interactions between country and rap. There's a a song by uh, a man called Eric Church called Homeboy, a very clever pun. The idea is that the singer's younger brother has uh, escaped uh, his podunk small town and moved to the big city and fallen in with a bad crowd and started slouching his uh, pants and so on and uh, got into some gang activity and his his brother is calling him Homeboy. Mm. <laughs> Come back to the farm. So final question for you both, starting with you, Rod. Uh, obviously country pop doesn't have the same popularity in the UK as it does in the States. So if there's one country pop song that you would recommend to listeners to perhaps get them into the genre if they're, if they're interested in doing so, what would it be? That's, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, just going back to what was said before. Yes, of course. The country is incredibly adaptable and always has been. And even though there were uh, fairly horrible people running it back in the in the 30s and 40s of the Grand Old Opry and so on, there were still plenty of black country performers who somehow managed to cross the divide, uh, you know, and they persisted into the 60s. And then you had Countrypolitan, which was the first evidence of country aiming itself squarely at the pop charts, people like Lynn Anderson uh, and so on. But the greatest thing, and, and it's what Sam's been talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's this, the main point of country music is that brilliant narrative it's it's keeps alive a narrative and if i if i had to choose it's not really a pop song but it is a country song and it's a song by guy clark called texas 1947 Uh, and in two minutes 48 seconds guy clark talks about being six years old and being at the railway station in his texas town of monaghan he doesn't mention monaghan but that's where it is uh, which is kind of uh, in between dallas and austin i think and uh, they're there to watch a train going through. And he's a bit confused because he's seen a train a number of times before. And he doesn't really, can't really work out why so many people are, are here to see this train. And the train stops every week and it drops off the mail and the soldiers from the war. And so he, he doesn't quite get why he's still there. And the train comes through and it's not a steam train. It's a diesel uh, and it doesn't stop. It just goes straight through. 
with that two minutes, 40 seconds, you don't really get what I think is quite a good narrative for a song anyway, which is about a little boy watching a train and, and the whole town, all the townspeople are pic pictured, you know, uh, the people playing dominoes. It's, it's all beautifully described. But you also see the death of their town. Their town is finished. Uh, it's now cut off from the railway. It's gone. And, you know, to do that and with a good tune in two minutes, 48 seconds, is astonishing, I think. Uh, of a modern pop country song, God forgive me for this. <laughs> You're still the one. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, it's it's just so apologise apologize to all of our listeners. Yes, apologise. <laughs> and Sam, one song, one country pop song. I mean, I think I may have to give two as well. Uh, I'll give a good one and one that I like, but okay. which is not necessarily good. I mean, they'll both be from, from this century. The good one is Good Lord Laurie by the Turnpike Troubadours, which, uh, yeah, again, country has just a spectacular capacity for, for storytelling and for emotion. And I think along with the blues, it's one of those genres that just kind of inherently seems to have an affinity for the more sorrowful and melancholy aspects of human experience. And and this is, in many ways, just an extremely classic country song. It is about young love turning sour and a uh, boy and a girl who, you know, her parents don't like them being together, the family's against their relationship, but they rebel against it all and give it a shot and it fails. <laughs> and it's just this kind of incredible lament for the foolishness of youth and the cruelty of adulthood and it's uh, and it's got some fantastic uh, evocative lyrics drunk and dark and dimming doorway light evan felker i think uh, is one of the great songwriters of our generation um, then your your second the other one it just has to be mud on the tires by brad paisley yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, just the, the kind of the grand canonical i mean kind of the song that that inaugurated the genre of yeah. truck country the opposite end of the spectrum uh a man's somewhat eroticized love letter to his truck in which the uh the woman in question is just a kind of elaborate hood ornament Lovely. Well, Sam and Rod, thank you very much for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read more about the pieces discussed. I'm William Moore, and do join us next week. Looks like we made it. A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, You'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.